Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November 8th. I am Bob Bowden of Choice Media, joined by my co-host... Kara Kandel. Hello, yeah, how do you Bob. like that intro? Yes, Kara uh, Kandel from the Pioneer Institute, and thank you for listening and tuning in to another Learning Curve. We'll call this a special edition, Kara. This is the 10th, 10th episode. episode. They've survived us for 10 episodes, Bob. It's Amazing. much like, yeah, when a sitcom nears the, t- the syndication deal and they can all, they're all set for life because they'll have it's millions and millions. It's just like that, obviously. <laughs> What can we even think of a single distinction between us and that scenario? <laughs> uh, all like right. An episode of Friends every week. Story number one from the Choice Media News. By the way, just as a sort of a promotional announcement, all you folks out there, if you want to try out the Choice Media smartphone app, it is the low, low cost of free. And you can get access to all these stories, including state-based filtering, see stories about just your state, also videos and podcasts like this one, and a bunch of other great education podcasts. Do we get to see your amazing new uh, video on the Prenda School? Absolutely. Thank you for for bringing that up. So well done. I recommend everybody look at it. A hybrid micro school, homeschool, the next big thing. Just amazing. Love it. Can't wait to see that in many more places. And just to briefly uh, say, when we first, when I first heard about this, you know, I kind of, you know, we're pitched a lot of things. Oh, come cover our school because our school's so great. You're like, yeah, okay, right. It's actually not that great. Yeah. But this pitch came across and I was like, whoa, like my eyes bugged out like a cartoon character. I was like, this is different. This really is an unusual model. And so we flew to Arizona and and did a, a new uh, video out just this week on the Prinda Micro School, and you can find it on the choicemedia.tv website. Now let's get to the news. And first, the first thing to get over, Kara, with this story is there's a company called themselves Gaggle, okay? You're like, if a friend called you up and said, hey, Kara, I'm starting a new business. Oh, really? Great. What's your new business called? Gaggle? Wouldn't you be like, oh, that sounds awfully close to Google. Maybe you should come up with another name. It, uh, and, yeah, it sounds like my two-year-old get it, you know, also just babbling. So Yes, right. All right. So, But this is actually a very serious story after that frivolous introduction. So the Santa Fe High School, this is not in New Mexico. It's in Texas. It's the school with the that had the school shooting last year in which eight students and two teachers were killed at the Santa Fe High School in Texas, all right? So they have hired a company called Gaggle, and maybe you won't be surprised by this, but the premise of this company is to, quote, stop tragedies with real-time content analogy uh, analysis, unquote. And so the company uses an in-house AI-powered filtering system scanning So artificial intelligence powered system, it scans student emails, documents, chats, the calendars the students put up, and it compares what students write against what they have a blocked word list, which contains not only profanity, but other kinds of references to self-harm or violence or bullying or drugs. They have all these words. They're, they're monitoring what all these kids write. And you might like say, okay, this one high school is doing that. Yeah, they had a big trauma last year. It's not just the one high school. Add to the Santa Fe High School 14 other schools across the country that are now paying this private company gaggle on its promise to stop tragedies with real-time content analysis, the company's charging schools about $60,000 each, a Gaggle spokesperson told BuzzFeed News that they have this list of terms that's regularly updated based on the language commonly used by children and adolescents. So in other words, if a new term comes along for like 
punching your friend in the face. They will like, you know, have that in their database. They have an anti-pornography scanner, they say, and they, uh, but they decline to answer too many questions from BuzzFeed, citing the sensitivity of their proprietary information about how their tools are uh, trained, and they don't answer many questions about, you know, how the AI tools learn based on what students put into their Microsoft, Microsoft 365 and, and Google G Suite. And so, they also, BuzzFeed says hundreds of company documents unveil a sprawling surveillance industrial complex that's targeting kids who can't opt out. Okay, and let me just read a little bit more because a lot of people don't know about this. But among the many banned words from the gaggle list, if your student is in school and they use words like suicide or kill myself or want to die or hurt me or drunk or heroin or this long list of words – they say that uh, 80% of those posts are then flagged by gaggle, with, and they end up going to humans that then like look, look over all this stuff. Uh, they say they separate bias from personal opinion. So they have, for example, words on the list, LGBTQ words like gay, lesbian, queer. They, when asked whether the company provides sensitivity training to the safety representatives, they said, yes, they coach their people. These are the, when it goes to the human level, the gaggle – company coaches them in how to separate bias and personal opinion from wow. their their moderation decisions. So we're, don't worry, we'll understand when it's personal opinion versus when it's bias, which wow, wow. So, you know, like, ruminate on the level of subjectivity on that for a moment. And then and then I'll just finish with this. They operate by a three strike rule, meaning a mild rule violation could be flagged to school administrators if a student does it repeatedly. For example, if a student says the F word three times in their emails or their chat rooms or their calendar entries or all kinds of things, school officials would be alerted. That's their you know three strikes. They're going to alert the school officials and students who commit the three strikes can have their account privileges limited until a school official gives those privileges back. Kara Kendall. I, I just I, I can't with this one because as a mother of three, realizing that children today and probably even an older generation, right, uh, younger younger than myself, um, are growing up in a society where they will never know what it's like not to be monitored. I mean, so we could probably talk about this one for an hour. All of the ideas about you know this going on behind the scenes no and all, is, is one thing, but at the bottom of this is just this idea. So, so first of all, let me say I can understand, I, I can begin to imagine how a school, a community, parents that have experienced great tragedy can want to do everything in their power, everything at their disposal to prevent another tragedy from happening. But this is just missing the, the, um, the forest for the trees. This is, this strikes me, Bob is absolutely insane. What, what about, so we can monitor folks to try and find indicators of behavior that might lead to harm or self-harm or just like anything that's undesirable. Like, yeah, yes. Begin to think about student free speech, but at the bottom of this too, as a former educator as a mom, what this brings to light for me is that we are now relying on technology to do the work 
of relationship building, to do that interpersonal work. What about, and, and there are so many wonderful teachers out there who are on the front lines of understanding when children have problems, when children are depressed, when children need help. And sometimes, yes, unfortunately, we can't know everything, right? But if we are relying on outsiders and outside technology, that sounds highly imperfect, right? To, to monitor behavior and try and alert us in some way, does that not make us complacent and it, as to building those interpersonal relationships, those small, tight-knit communities, those, right? Hillary Clinton, it takes a village, not just Hillary Clinton, a lot of people said it, but it takes a village to raise kids. And are we just saying that the village no longer needs to exist because, hey, by the way, Gaggle will do it for you. Yeah, and this just so one, a little- I think is really interesting and really frightening. I'll- a little devil's advocacy just for fun, but one of their selling points is they say they've saved hundreds of lives each year from suicide. They say in the 2018 to 19 school year, they prevented 722 students from committing suicide. They said that- And, and did the- they send those students to receive the services that they need, the supports that they need going forward? So they're not going to have those thoughts later on or attempted later they, on, or did they, they do say- it because there was a bullying flag and I can stop this one incident rather than addressing what is actually the underlying issue? I mean, they're also selling their service, so they have an incentive to, you know, inflate. And you know what? If I, were, if I were a parent or a principal who, um, who had students that were experiencing suicidal thoughts or something, I would probably be compelled to do anything in my power to prevent anything bad from happening. I just don't think this is the answer. And oh my goodness, like I said, we could do a whole show or 10 on the ramifications. I know, I'm all, I'm deep into that. So they say of the the 52,000 references to suicide and self-harm they saw last school year, 6,000 were serious enough that they called the school immediately. And of those 6,000, they said 722 were so specific that they identified them as a life saved. Okay, so one question I would ask is, is just quickly, who owns the student data? The piece, the BuzzFeed piece doesn't specifically say, but, and I called Gaggle the the way myself, and they did Not parents. <laughs> right. So can they sell it to marketers? Can they I'm sell sure. it to anybody? Let's say you run for and office in 10 ever or know, Bob. That's yeah, the question. Let's say you run for office in 20, 10 or 20 years, and your political opponent wants to pay to see what you wrote to your friends in high school. Maybe it's completely legal for this private company can sell it. Or or maybe you're the spouse who's divorcing you 10 years from now wants to paint you in a negative light. Sell your angry words you wrote when you were 16 years old, you know, to, as a character evidence. I, I you know? shudder. There, there are reasons I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> moving uh, on. <laughs> moving on. Story number two, the uh, school day is two hours shorter than the work day, and Kamala oh, Harris wants to change that. This is the next story. It's actually from Mother Jones, and we like to post, we at Choice Media like to post a, at least one Mother Jones story in our regular newswire, at least one per millennium. So we are now good to the year 3000 for Mother Jones stories. But, Come on, I'm, I'm going to start looking and sending them to you. <laughs> but... And I don't know if our listeners are aware of this. Kamala Harris was once a presidential candidate. Very few few people still remember that, but it actually is true. She was come on now. <laughs> she was once a candidate. Anyway, her logic here is that the majority of school days end around three p.m., two hours before the end of seventy percent of parents' work days. Fewer than a third of low-income schools offer after-school care. And so the schools shut down. Also, 29 days during the school year for certain holidays that are not federal holidays. And that's completely separate from the summer vacation that leaves working parents scrambling for daycare, et cetera. So Kamala Harris says, 
aligning school and work schedules is an economic growth and child development strategy. Her plan, 500 schools, they have 500 test schools that have a high proportion of low-income families and, and give them $5 million each of federal money over five years to keep their doors open to 6 p.m. as a test to see if that helps everybody's lives. Kara. Cheers to this. As a full-time working mother of three, my daughter's school principal can tell you that I am the first to lodge a lot of complaints <laughs> about the, oh, today, just by the way, school's getting out at 11 a.m., and today, just by the way, we're going to have a random day off, and oh, we get every, it is out of control, and I am lucky enough to have a lot of outside help in raising my kids, so I can only imagine parents who don't. School districts all around me routinely uh, end the school day at 1 p.m. And I understand that there's a reason for that, that teachers need time and planning time and professional development and all those things that contribute to excellent teaching and excellent schools. And I think it's going to be better. I think she's got a great point here. And I applaud this. People, uh, people love it when we disagree, Kara. That's their favorite part of the podcast. And people <laughs> okay. can also probably predict that we would disagree. I this call point. this, what do I call this? Top-down D.C. bureaucrats seduced by the delicious specter of getting to make new rules for other people who live thousands of miles away from them. Does the, the, um, the idea doesn't need to come from D.C. If people want to do this, they can do it right now in states and districts. They don't need Kamala Harris and they don't need D.C. bureaucrats to throw printed money at them to create with and god knows the rules and regulations that they'll dream up you know the reams and reams of thousands of pages of those that they'll come up with this it is you know and then they'll have to, of course hire people to do federal monitors to make sure that the rules and regulations are being followed and that you know enforce them to write reports about the how well we're might the end result though be my friend that more kids even more low-income kids especially are spending more time learning and doing to, things that contribute to learning. I mean, it's it no, could. She be. ought to run for school board. She ought to run for school board, and then I, I got uh, enough school board. <laughs> she ought to get everyone in the district where she lives to agree that to try this as at her district if she wants to run for school board, and that would be fine if she wants to do that. Which we're going to change the but all kinds of districts are already changing their school hours. It's already happening all over the place with later start times. That's. Uh, which actually in, runs contrary. Which is actually, to this like a, not the point, right? <laughs> it, 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 my point is, is that is that one size fits all is a mess in all kinds of ways, wasted money. I would in, say this is not one size. This is about parameters, right? This is about keeping schools open longer for working parents and for kids, and then allowing localities to determine what happens and what's best for the kids. I'm not even going to say for you to time. read. I'm not even saying for that. I want you to read the regulations that come up with those. So I just want you to care to like hold them up in the air. It's going to be so heavy. So many reams of paper to print out the regulations. I Listen, just, man, I, would, I want you to hold strong. them for five minutes without putting them down on a table. <laughs> All right. Our third story. New York City pays rubber room teacher $1.7 million after 20 years after sex abuse claims that were 20 years ago, this is a guy, New York City, taught, was a music teacher in Queens, taught two years before being suspended in November 1999. But of course, they he'd reached tenure by the time he was brought to trial, where the hearing officer tossed the case on a technicality. He's 53 years old, has not set a foot in a classroom for 20 years, remains on the city payroll, can't be fired. His salary in 1998 
the last time he taught was $39,000 and change. He now makes $132,000. I'm, I'm in the wrong profession. <laughs> to sit and do nothing. He makes $132,753 a year. If you add up the, all those years, it's $1.7 million in salary. Of course, he has summers off. That means he doesn't have to show up to the rubber room. It's the whole the 20 years off, not just the summers, but, the, but I guess the summers he doesn't have to. He has full health benefits. Full pension How benefits. How is this guy not in jail? I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm just having a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they, this the whole thing is a pet peeve of mine. If anyone from our side ever uses the colloquial shorthand to say you can't fire a teacher, in, at least in states with tenure, the, the union loyalists will say, well, that's a lie. You can fire a teacher. Uh, sometimes it requires you committing a felony. But when they had the Vergara case, a which felony. is a civil case in California. Pardon? I said it's just a felony. Anyway, yeah. go on. So, so there was a civil case in California about tenure a few years ago, and with 265,000 tenured teachers statewide, they found – in other words, all – I, I get so worked up, Kara. They found over a 10-year period, the average of tenured teachers fired for cause was two per year in the state of California, two out of 265,000. That's why it's a lie to say you can't fire a tenured teacher. Why? Now, Bob, because you just, two I'm, are fired. You get worked up, and I'm just going to ask you, like, are you surprised? I, you know what? The only thing I'm surprised about, and thank you for resurfacing this, because for real, we're still dealing with the rubber room, wasn't it? What was it? Waiting for Superman that revealed this thing to the general public, and we were all outraged for a little while, and then suddenly no, it went away. They were I mean, about uh, Mayor Bloomberg had ended the rubber room, but he, they just ended the physical rubber room. They but they still all the same policies were there, which means they didn't have to show up anymore. I guess to that what had been that physical location during no the Bloomberg thinking administration. Person, no thinking person is going to say anything other than this is absolutely ridiculous. It's the fact that it persists that is that is surprising and, and crazy. And it's, it's amazing to me that the teachers unions wouldn't want to make sure that they got rid of this because like they don't need any more bad press. And this is something that I think it doesn't matter what, part of the spectrum you fall on or what you think about teachers union. I, I really can't believe that any thinking person would think that this is okay. All right. So coming up next, everybody, the great Dr. Lindsay Burke from the Heritage Foundation. Boy, when I met Lindsay Burke, uh, she was just Lindsay Burke. Now she's Dr. Lindsay Burke, PhD. And we will hear from her after this palate cleanse of musical interlude. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. There is good news. You may have troubles in your life. You may have adversity. You may have unfortunate things that happen. But the good news is that you're about to hear an interview with the great Lindsay Burke, Ph.D., not only education scholar with the Heritage Foundation, but also co-editor with Jonathan Butcher of the new book, The Not-So-Great Society. And Lindsay, thanks so much for being our guest on the Learning Curve podcast. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Okay, so and just to set up, the, the book is available right now for uh, order through the Heritage website, and we'll have the link, and, and there's, a, there's a limited number of free copies that people can get right now. Is that correct? That's right. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, that's 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 a good reason to rush everybody. All right, so let's get to a few. And I got to tell you, this book kind of sneaked up on me a little bit. It is it is a veritable who's who 
of education scholars and thought leaders that you have uh, you have edited chapters from a whole wide variety of super thoughtful, insightful, and wise people. So congratulations on the on the effort. Thank you, thank you. It was uh, definitely a team effort. Jonathan Butcher on my team here and I co-edited this book, and Jonathan just did amazing work on it. So we're really proud of it. We're proud of. The contributions that we received from, as you said, top scholars across the country working in the education space and working in, you know, it could be pre-K, K-12, higher education. So really across the board, um, we have contributions on sort of the bookends of education policy all through the middle and anything that you would possibly want answered, we think. Yeah, no, it's it's an incredible effort. And as you are our guest right now and not Jonathan, I think you should take all the credit and say Jonathan did nothing. (laughs) So moving forward now, so the book is called The Not-So-Great Society, and there are a few inflection points in U.S. federal policy involving education, of course. You could have titled your book something about a nation of risk, which was from 1983 in the Reagan administration. There was the creation of the U.S. Department of Education in 1979 under Jimmy Carter. You picked a different federal inflection point, the 1964 Great Society proposal by President Lyndon Johnson. Um, it, It was in the May of 64, only about six months after the Kennedy assassination. And we'll table for another time my my sympathies about JFK, Dealey Plaza conspiracy theories. That'll be another time. But what was important? What's important for us to understand about Johnson's Great Society moment? Well, you know, I think conceptually, people understand that there really isn't an articulated federal role for education, right? If you crack open your constitution, you won't find the word education. It is simply not an enumerated power of the federal government. And yet, we have gotten to a point where we have a federal agency, the Department of Education, that has more than 4,000 employees uh, who are employed by the department. There is this sort of parasitic relationship between the federal agency and state education agencies who have to comply with federal mandates and then have staff to do so, which, of course, trickles down to the local education agency, the school district level. So with no enumerated um, sort of uh, authority to oversee education, how did we get to this point? Because so much of it, if you look back through history, you you can see that the federal government had a pretty limited role, right? We see the Northwest Ordinance at the, you know, early uh, formation of the Republic, 1787. We get the Morrill Act, you know, in 1862. And then we actually do see a blip. You, You talk about inflection points. In 1867, we see the first Department of Education created. But it was downgraded really, really quickly a year later just to a small little bureau of education just to gather statistics. And so there was really an extremely limited federal presence all the way up until you see a little more robust intervention around 1940, right? We get the National School Lunch Program. And then in in 1944, we get the GI Bill. But that was basically it, right? From 1787 to 1944, the federal government really had no major intervention in education. But then something happens, and that something is the Soviets launching the Sputnik satellite in 1957, right? So in October, we see the first Sputnik satellite launched, and then about a month later, in November of 57, they launched the second Sputnik satellite. And it was just to interrupt for a second, you could say Brown v. Board in 1954 was for sure, for sure. Yeah, that's absolutely. 
Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so, but if we're thinking just about programs, right, the programmatic side of things, there were, there were pretty limited federal programs that were out there. Um, and so Sputnik launches and then Eisenhower at that time says, you know, we need, in his words, to, to best the communists on their own terms. And so we see the National Defense Authorization Act uh, introduced, but still, even at that point, there was a national security rationale for the federal government getting involved. We chose to to focus in on the Great Society because there was such a major shift. Johnson comes in and he says, we are now going to leverage the federal government not to fight this war against the Soviets, but to shift the focus toward fighting a domestic war on poverty at home. And that was a game changer for federal intervention in education. He talks about how a third place to build the great society is in the classrooms of America, and there your children's lives will be shaped. So long story short, to answer your question, <laughs> the reason that we decided to focus on the great society as an inflection point is because I, I think few people know that a third of the great society really was classroom-based. People understand the, the Medicaid and Medicare and welfare components of it, but so much of Johnson's program was an education program, and that has fundamentally transformed the relationship between the federal government and local education policy. Mm-hmm. What so when you look at the overview of federal of the federal education footprint right now in American society, it's about ten percent of spending overall is federal. I I put together something like sixteen billion uh, for uh, targeting low income students, a program called Title One, about sixteen billion in that, about thirteen billion for. Uh, students with disabilities in a in an IDEA uh, program, and then ten billion for a pre K program called Head Start. The, the, so those are some of the big things. But then tentacles in all kinds of other programs that most yeah. people don't even know exist. Seven hundred million for English language learners, and five hundred million for the charter schools, and three hundred million for education innovation, and two hundred million for school safety, and et cetera. Right? Like it's. Uh, yeah, so so point well taken, right? If you if we just look at the Department of Ed, the budget's about seventy billion. But you're you're exactly right. If we look across the federal government, and this is why it's so important to look across agencies, there are numerous federal education programs housed in other cabinet level agencies. You mentioned Head Start, that's a really good example of one of those programs that we spend almost ten billion dollars a year on. I mean, we've spent two hundred and forty billion on the federal Head Start program since it launched in 1965 as a small summer program. So that's a non-trivial amount of money that we're spending uh, through HHS on a, a on an education program. Right. Okay. And so and so we have all of this spending. Some might say some might look at federal education spending as a way to um, uh, you know, equalize states that have different amounts of money. Some states are richer, some are poorer. And so uh, by the U.S. Department of Education being there, it kind of, you know, we send through our taxes all this money to D.C. and then they dole some of it, some percentage of it back to us. And some might say, well, that's that's a fairness thing. That way, uh, if you're a poor state, you can get support from the U.S. federal government uh, because, you know, the richer states can afford to give you some of their money, something like that. What do you say? So I would not disagree with that uh, th- with that description of the practice, right? So it is definitely true that the federal government sends additional money to low-income school districts across the board ostensibly, and this is one of the, uh, um, you know, 
rationales early on for the Great Society, but ostensibly to make up for those discrepancies between outcomes between low-income districts and more affluent districts. So that's absolutely the case. They spend more. The question, though, is what are we getting for the additional spending that was catalyzed by the Great Society programs? Are we actually seeing these programs produce the results that proponents promised? That's what we should focus on. And unfortunately, the answer to that question is no. And we've got two great chapters in the book, one by Eric Hanyashek and one by Paul Peterson. And both of those chapters build off of, of some of their more recent work where they look at achievement gaps between the bottom 10% and top 10% of students by income distribution. And they find that if you look back to the early days of the Great Society, that there was about a four-year difference in learning between low-income students and their more affluent peers. So four grade levels difference back in the 60s when this all launched. Today, there is a four grade level difference in learning between poor and non-poor students. So we have not moved the needle whatsoever in terms of narrowing that achievement gap, which is, as you described, the rationale behind this additional federal funding to low-income districts. Um, you know, some might also say the one advantage of having a federal uh, U.S. Department of Education giving all this money to large districts and states is that the federal government can print money, unlike the states. And so, gee, that's free, right? That's free money that the states get, that if you just eliminated all of this spending tomorrow, uh, gee, uh, they would lose all of this uh, funding. And it's not a direct, con- it's not directly correlated to how much taxes are being raised in all 50 states. It's, it's arguably a percentage of that federal spending is invented money. And therefore, losing that invented money will hurt kids. Yes, what do you I, say to that? I, I, too, would love to think that I have a money tree in my backyard, <laughs> that it's all coming out of out of thin air. But it all comes from taxpayers as individuals who are working hard week after week, year after year to earn money for their family. And that money gets taxed. It gets sent from the local level up through the states and to the federal government which filters it through uh, these numerous programs at the Department of Ed and across agencies, and then sends it back down to the local level, going through multiple levels of bureaucracy. Ben Scafidi talks about how it is a 16-layer cake of bureaucracy in a lot of states that that money has to get filtered through. And then something like maybe 60 cents on the dollar makes it back to the classroom. It's a terribly inefficient way to spend money and to deliver public education dollars to the public. And so, yeah, I mean, every every dollar that you earn is, in fact, your money. <laughs> it is not money right. that, you know, miraculously just pops up at the federal level to be redistributed. People think of it as as kind of free money. And I've all even seen this on a state basis where a certain town school district will say, oh, we got a we got state money coming in, which to them, like, that's free. That's not the local school district's tax levy. Right. That's some sort of. So so there's almost the sense of like if it's coming from far away. It's free. It's not from us. And we don't care if it's misspent or wasted because, you know, it's a it, the, the responsibility for paying for those kinds of far away programs are diffused. And it's not just us paying for it. It's a bunch of other people paying for it as well. So go ahead and waste it. Who cares? Right? Yeah. And you know, what, what's interesting about that, to go back to Ben Scafidi's chapter in our book, 
he really kind of breaks down the actual cost of receiving those dollars in terms of what does it take for an SEA or an LEA to actually participate in a federal program? And it takes a whole lot of non-teaching administrative staff. Yeah, and by that you mean a state or a, dis- a state department of education or a school district. Yes, correct. And so, we, you know, he talks about how we've seen a 137% increase in non-teaching staff and administrative bloat since the Great Society programs were launched. And a lot of that has everything to do with federal policies that are promulgated across the board, program after program, to which states and school districts have to apply, they have to monitor federal register notices, they have to report back to the federal government that they're in compliance. All of that takes staff and leads to administrative bloat. So there's a real cost, and and that real cost means additional opportunity costs, right? Money that's not ultimately making its way into the classroom. And, you know, I would add too something else that's interesting from the book is, you know, Paul Peterson at Harvard in our book talks about how the focus after the Great Society really was on administrators at the expense of teacher quality, he hypothesizes. And so folks sort of policymakers and officials kind of shifted their focus toward hiring these non-teaching staff And some of the focus sort of shifted off of teacher quality, which he argues has really been uh, one of the major reasons why we have not seen the types of improvement that we would hope to see over time. Let's talk about a few specific federal programs. Uh, I mentioned earlier Head Start for pre-K kids, uh, three and four-year-olds, essentially. Um, I don't know how many billions has been spent on the Head Start program over the years, Lindsay, but... uh, A billion. $250 $250 billion, okay. Yes. yes. And uh, what has been the result of that spending? Yeah, unfortunately, Head Start is the best, worst example of, out, of program outcomes for programs that the Great Society launched. So the federal Head Start program, you can look at all kinds of metrics. But if we look at the evaluations conducted by the federal government, Uh, on how students who go through Head Start perform over time, it's pretty dismal. The federal evaluations that are out there, randomized control trial evaluations, found that Head Start has had little to no impact on children's cognitive ability, their social-emotional well-being, their parents' parenting practices, their access to health care. Nothing that Head Start promised has it achieved. What we do have as a result of Head Start is, again, a lot of administrative bloat. Uh, One could even say that this is sort of functioning as more of a federal jobs program. Head Start employs 265,000 adults in the program to administer Head Start. I mean, it's just it's an incredible number of of adults um, who are on staff in that program. So we've gotten that out of Head Start. But unfortunately, have not gotten academic excellence. And I would add too, um, Jonathan's actually looking in right now to a lot of the um, the new GAO reports that have just been released on fraud in the program and other abuses, unfortunately. So Head Start's one of, one of the uh, really unfortunate failures out of the Great Society programs. And you know that's because when you relegate low-income families to these distant federal preschool programs, the programs just aren't responsive to their needs. 
And so if we think about how do we ultimately improve something like Head Start, you know, at the very least, give families some control over the dollars that are spent, allow that money to be portable, allow them to select into private preschool providers of choice, and, and I would argue ultimately restore revenue responsibility for Head Start to the states. And some also, let's face it, uh, we'll refer to it as kind of a babysitting program too, right? Yes. Aren't there working parents? <laughs> Go ahead. True. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's absolutely correct, that there is a sort of daycare function of Head Start. And so, you know, it's it's one thing to evaluate it on that measure, which, by the way, is just difficult to do because we don't have the data uh, to really assess the extent to which it's improving labor force participation. Um, if we did, that would be very interesting to, to analyze. You know, but it is sort of positioned as a early education program, and therefore we have federal evaluations of its efficacy in that regard, and the outcomes are just um, uh, uninspiring, to say the least. Yeah, and what I saw, Lindsay, was the they would look at kids in the third grade and they would, you know, uh, control uh, basically for all kinds of demographics and find that you couldn't tell the difference between which third graders had been to Head Start and which third graders had not been to Head Start. And but what the defenders of Head Start said was, oh, well, that's because uh, those Head Start programs will run differently, and now we're going to tweak it with this other way, and now with these new tweaks to pre-K programs, that will suddenly boost the efficacy of them. And that's why, you know, these previous studies showing that they're not effective can be tossed. They're irrelevant. Uh, we got these new tweaks. We're going to call it, you know, Head Start improved or so we're gonna have some new <laughs> some new version of it and that we'll and, and you know and some very smart respectable people will stridently defend the you know empirical evidence of some new version of pre-k right uh, if, if only it were so i mean the the head start program it's it's pretty clear that the outcomes have been subpar i mean the first evaluation that came out from the federal government was called the first grade study and that followed 5,000 children who had gone through head start and had not right so it was they used a randomized control trial evaluation of the program and tracked them through first grade and they found that some so kids may have recognized you know a few additional letters upon upon kindergarten entry or done a little bit better when they entered kindergarten but by first grade they had start to they had started to see those gains fade out and then we got the third grade evaluation a few years later from the federal government and we see complete and total fade out and if that were the only issue that there was no difference uh, in the program outcomes for the control and experiment groups that would be one thing but the story gets worse because there are additional evaluations that looked at, well, what do teachers say about the kids who have gone through Head Start? And teachers report that kids who go through Head Start have worse behavioral outcomes. And so there are other sort of um, sort of non-academic measures um, that suggest that the kids who go through the program are unfortunately actually worse off as a result. All right. So let, let's move on. Maybe I've picked too much, picked on the poor Head Start program. I'm sure something called the School Improvement Grants Federal Program <laughs> would have been proven effective. Uh, it seems very smart. If you read during the Obama administration, they had uh, these descriptions of uh, practices that would be encouraged uh, into schools to improve them. And it all seemed to make a lot of sense. Tell me about the SIG program, School Improvement Grants. Yeah, you know, and this is another one of those sort of uh, competitive grant programs that have multiplied over the, the decades as a result of that initial federal intervention in 1965. If just a quick diversion here, and if you look back at 1965, 
So now we're at the K-12 level, right? We've moved away from Head Start. The Great Society gave us Head Start. It gave us the Elementary and Secondary Education Act at the K-12 level, and it gave us the Higher Education Act in the higher ed space. So now we're looking at at K-12. When that original Elementary and Secondary Education Act was passed, it was a relatively modest program, still way more federal intervention than we had had before, but it was a program that, uh, a bill that was about 30 pages long. It was uh, small, you could get a staple through it. It had 11 titles, it was targeted. The main portion of it was Title I that you described before. But what we see very quickly is that with nearly every reauthorization of ESEA, and people will know it, the 2001 reauthorization the best when it got renamed No Child Left Behind, but with every reauthorization, we see more and more programs added. You mentioned the SIG program is a good example. Uh, programs that are competitive in nature that districts and states have to apply for, and then just growth in the formula grant programs like Title I where states are allocated additional federal resources via formula, that those programs and the spending associated with it uh, have increased significantly as well. And so, you know, I keep pointing back, whether it's SIG or any of the other more than 100 programs that have ebbed and flowed just under ESEA alone since it was passed, but whether it's that program or any of the others, that on balance, when you look at the totality of the programs and the spending, they have not done anything to move the needle on improved academic outcomes for students across the country. And that has come at extreme taxpayer expense. And I would say even more importantly, has come at significant loss of local autonomy when it comes to directing their education um, uh, priorities. Yeah, yeah. T- tell me just a little bit about your your theories on the concept of technocrats and how they kind of view the role of um, – of of coming in to improve practices because they are um, experts, right? And so, I just think even if, even this week, Lindsay, there was uh, I, uh, you know back I saw I saw news this week that the state of Texas had taken over the school board of the city of Houston. They were yeah. basically going to deeply like kick out the authority. You know, they're basically eliminating authority from the from the Houston school board. And yet, just six years ago. The Broad Foundation gave its prize for best urban school district in terms of urban school improvement to the city of Houston. So now six <laughs> years later, we see this that school board basically get stripped of its powers by the state for its such for all their reason, all the reasons they they had. And I just I think about how people from afar review and analyze uh, something on the ground that's, you know, not not. And they're not participating in, and they're they're not a marketplace essentially. That even the the best smartest people try to evaluate what's good for some system, and uh, they they screw up. They come up with they they spend money in ways that don't matter. That's they right. have nice sounding proposals, and yet what seems to over and over again bear fruit in this space is. Our marketplaces where individuals make separate decisions and innovate in their own way, solving their own problems. So what is your kind of view of is there is there something about this uh, kind of worship of of experts or kind of the myth of believing in expert salvation that is driving a lot of the federal education footprint? Well, yeah, I, I think that you have totally nailed it. And not only is it this sort of 
um, faith and expertise from a faraway distant Washington, or even, even if you're positioned in a state capital or even an LEA, a local school district, you are still f- much farther away from the parent who is, in fact, the expert and the needs of their own child. Uh, you know, you're, you're much further away than the parent, so you're much less well positioned to make informed decisions about the needs of that individual child. And that ultimately, and in our book, this is sort of the conclusion that we come to, is that when Lyndon Johnson formulated the Great Society, he left out the most important place to foster societies that are great, that have strong morals and character development and are responsive to the needs of families. And and that is with the family itself. I mean, he fundamentally shifted control and the focus of education policy from the local level to the federal level in a major way. And that really is the fundamental misalignment that we see that the Great Society um, propagated over the past few decades. And so, yeah, I mean, look, this all comes back, I think, and I will you know, say this until I'm blue in the face, with what Milton Friedman argued, that you as an individual who is in control of your dollars are always gonna spend your money in a way that maximizes value, gets you a good quality, product at a good price point, much better than some third party payer. And the third party payer in this case, uh, and deliverer is the district school system, right? I mean, Friedman talks about how you can spend your own money on yourself, your own money on somebody else, somebody else's money on yourself or somebody else's money on somebody else. Well, that's that last way is how school districts spend money. They spend somebody else's money, your taxpayer dollars on somebody else's children And so they really have no incentive to economize or to maximize value. What education choice does, and in particular, I would argue education savings accounts, is that gets us much closer to spending your own money on your own children. And that realigns incentives in a way that helps maximize uh, value for the family and ensures that, that they will get something that is reflective of the needs and hopes and aspirations of their children. Lindsay Burke, Ph.D., co-editor of the new book, The Not-So-Great Society, uh, available for pre-order right right now. I guess order, not so much pre-order. Available for order right now on the Heritage Foundation website. We will also have the link in our uh, podcast information. Lindsay Burke, thanks for being my guest on the Learning Curve podcast. Thank you for having me. And we are back with the tweet of the week, this time from Sandy Cress at Cress underscore Sandy, saying, quote, we have a national policy called Every Student Succeeds, yet there's really nothing in that policy that demands or even incentivizes changes in the status quo that would likely yield success. Well, thank you, Sandy, for this insightful tweet. I mean, the fact of the matter is, this is something, I, I used to talk about this with my students at Boston University. It's like, could we um, could we start to come up with better names for every education reform? Um, we make these lofty promises that we're probably never going to meet. And we can only remember, I mean, I thought it was great policy, but we can remember all of the names for No Child Left Behind. It's as if we just open ourselves up to the critique that um, let's get with the program. Nothing in it that incentivizes changes in the status quo. I guess my question is, um, why aren't we focusing more on things that do? And I think that's Sandy's question as well. 
So well, I've been supportive of certain aspects. You know, as uh, uh, you know, There's despite my good earlier ideas in there, there are good ideas in there. Let's not be. It's a, but it's in the implementation, like with everything. The- Commentary of the week is America's students flounder while education reformers virtue signal from my friends Jay Green and Rick Hess. And and also a in, very Jay Green and Rick Hesse title. Sorry, just had to say, but love it. It's a good article. Sure. It's a, the, the, they argue the U.S. and this is uh, great stuff for, as far as I'm concerned. The U.S. is distinctive for its, you know, decentralized system of schools with 14,000 school districts and 50 legislatures. And that educational improvement is therefore always political. But they say that today's education reform organizations are, if you're going to invoke politics, overwhelmingly populated by Democrats. They said they analyzed the campaign contributions from employees at a wide swath of education reform groups like Teach for America, many charter school operators. They say in their analysis more than 90 percent of the thousands of contributions they analyzed were went to Democrats. It says there that the school reformers today are more uniformly partisan than even the National Education Association, Association, NEA. And I don't know about that. I think they might have just gone a little crazy with that line. But they say it's a massive change that 20 years ago, in 2000, they said that employees in a similar sample were more evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. And now it's no longer the case. And why? Just in a nutshell, and I won't do it justice, you guys can look up the link on the Choice Media uh, Education Reform Opinion section, but it's uh, their uh, explanation is that over the past uh, two decades, we've been had a single-minded focus on improving urban minority student performance, and that hyper-focus on struggling urban schools gave the lesson to other people, middle class, suburban, rural Americans, that school reform is not for you. It's for these urban communities and that they say that whatever the cause of that shift, it made school reform play out as more of an intramural fight among Democrats over what's best for this urban population. With the, and, and what happened then is a small band of reform minded Democrats were got way overspent by the yeah. union minded Democrats yeah. and that 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 was the sort of uh, sort of paradigm shift to explain why they're seeing it's they're most it's most you know all these uh, organizations be mostly uh, Democrat run. What do you and say? And this is I have to say, Bob, I agree with you. This is a really this is a great article. It's of course from these guys. It's really really interesting, and it made me think just about you know education reforms of the past that were truly bipartisan tended to be the ones that worked. So of course sitting up here, as always, in Massachusetts, really close to the ivory tower, right? But we can look back at, we're seeing this here in the Commonwealth, we can look back at the Massachusetts Education Reform Act of 1993, which was truly a bipartisan effort. Um, uh, Tom Birmingham and Senator Roosevelt, um, these, these people had to come together across the aisle to agree on something and to agree to do better for kids. And we're absolutely, and you know, we can say in all realm of politics, not in the same place today. And to my mind, that's that's pretty scary. So a great piece. Thank you so much for this commentary. Yeah. So that's my take on on that. And and guess what? We're I think we're done with this episode, Kara. We're done with episode 10. And for now, I'm uh, I'm Bob Bowden with Choice Media and I'm Kara Kandel, Pioneer Institute. We'll see you next time. Next time.